Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Conversations at the Washington Library. We're delighted to be back with you now after our summer break, and I have to say, we've got some great guests on the horizon. They'll take us on a musical tour of the early republic, hunt Satan and witches in the British Atlantic world, explore everyday life in the early American economy, and everything in between. And we'll have a few special side journeys along the way. To kick off this new season, we're going to explore the life of a radical populist who never met a revolution he didn't like. Almost unbelievably, Herman Husband participated in some of the most significant events in 18th century America. The Great Awakening, the North Carolina Regulation Movement, the American Revolution, and the Whiskey Rebellion. Husband's story illuminates the major religious, political, and economic upheavals that reshaped North America in this period, and we might just see some parallels between his time and our own. On today's show, Dr. Bruce Stewart, a professor of history at Appalachian State University, joins us to unpack Husband's life. Stewart is the author of the new book, Redemption from Tyranny, Herman Husband's American Revolution, which was published in 2020 by the University of Virginia Press. It's a compelling story of early America told through the eyes of a man for whom revolutions never went far enough. So let's kick off Season 5 of Conversations by finding redemption from tyranny with Bruce Stewart. You know, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about uh, Herman Husband. And, you know, I've seen his name pop up here and there in various capacities, whether it's the regulation, uh, uh, whether it's Pennsylvania politics in the revolutionary era or the Whiskey Rebellion. And I, you know, I always see his name pop up, but I, I, I never sort of imagined the full scope of his life. And I, I thought as a way to get into his life, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind giving the audience a kind of brief sketch of Herman Husband. Herman Husband lived between 1724 to 1795. Um, he was a, a wealthy farmer, I would argue an evangelical, also a political activist. And what is fascinating about um, Herman Husband is that he's going to participate in several of uh, what I would say the most important social protest movements of mm-hmm. uh, 18th century American society. First one of those is going to be the Great Awakening um, in the 1730s to 1740s. Um, he's going to embrace kind of that evangelical um, counterculture, and that's going to influence him later on throughout um, his entire life. The second protest movement that he's ultimately going to participate in is going to be in the 1760s, the North Carolina Regulation. I um, should say he was actually born in uh, Maryland, um, mm-hmm. and as we get into the early 1750s, he's ultimately going to move down to uh, the Piedmont of North Carolina, um, ultimately searching for uh, land is really the main thing that he that he wants. Make a long story short, in the 1760s, he's going to become a what I call a spokesperson um, for the North Carolina regulation. He's going to be supportive of those farmers who are um, in protest of local corruption, mm-hmm. uh, protesting against what they view are um, economic and political inequalities um, that existed in the um, North Carolina backcountry. Uh, make a long story short, that North Carolina regulation is ultimately going to be defeated by uh, North Carolina Governor's William Tryon um, at the Battle of Alamance in May 1771. Um, he actually has a price on his head. Um, so he's going to, he being Herman Husband, is going mm-hmm. to flee North Carolina. And he's eventually going to make his way into western Pennsylvania in the early 1770s. Um, it's there that he's going to participate in the third major protest movement. And um, that, of course, being the American Revolution. 
Um, he's going to um, support the Patriots. He's actually going to view the American Revolution as as uh, really the beginning of the millennial. We'll get, I guess we'll get into the post-millennialism mm-hmm. that stuff um, later on. It'll be very brief um, right here. As we get in, so he stays in Western Pennsylvania throughout the American Revolution. He's going to be a patriot. And the fourth and final um, movement that he's going to be uh, participating in is going to be the Whiskey Rebellion in Southwestern Pennsylvania in the early um, 1790s. He's actually going to be uh, one of the first whiskey, so-called whiskey um, rebels to be arrested. He's eventually going to be sent to Philadelphia in a jail. Um, it, by this time, it's 1794, he's 70 years old. Um, he's eventually released, but shortly thereafter, um, he's going to, to die. So really what, what I found fascinating with Herman Husband is that you can use this one individual to look at what I call the long American revolution mm-hmm. to, to show how uh, throughout this, the long, you know, 18th century, how these economic forces, uh, these religious forces, these political forces are ultimately going to influence the, the worldview of not only Herman Husband, but also other people. But during those uh, protest movements, he is going to earn the reputation as being a radical. <laughs> now, before I tell you, before I elaborate on radical, let me or tell you what he was. Let me tell you, first of all, what he was not. I yeah. think that kind of say that up front. Um, he's not going to be an advocate for gender equality. Um, mm-hmm. for so he's going to be a firm supporter for the maintenance of patriarchy. So he doesn't see the American Revolution as, as, a, as, a, as an instrument to improve women's rights, to allow them to have the right to vote, have economic power, et cetera, et cetera. He ultimately believes, again, that men are head of the household, and as such, they should also be head of the, the public sphere. Sure. Um, he's also not going to be a proponent for racial equality. Um, like most uh, white people at that time, they, he's going to view African-Americans as inferior, as incapable of participating mm-hmm. um, in, in politics, participating in American society. Um, so he's not advocating for racial um, equality. The interesting thing with him with that, though, is he is opposed to slavery, but he's not opposed to slavery for concern of the enslaved. Yeah, let's get, get into um, that just briefly. Um, I'd, love, you know, I'd love for you to talk about why why he is in fact opposed to slavery, but not for the reasons we might think. Yeah, he's um, he's opposed to slavery, again, not because of moral considerations, not because of a concern of, of the enslaved, but he ultimately believed that slavery prevented what he called a laboring industrious white man mm-hmm. from obtaining land, from obtaining employment. He criticized slavery, that particularly those slaveholders who owned a lot of slaves. He ultimately believed that slaveholding promoted uh, these, made these white men lazy. Um, so for him, he's opposed to slavery due to the negative impacts that he believes it has on white society, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the laboring industrious uh, men. Um, in many ways, it's kind of like in the 1850s with free soilers. Um, yeah. in the, in the white northerners. I mean, they're they're opposed to slavery not because of a concern of African Americans, but hey, if slavery expands in the territories, if I want to go to the territories, those slaves are going to take away my jobs. Right. Right. Um, so in many ways, it's very similar to uh, to what you see unfolding in the 1850s. But to get back to what he was not, again, he's not he being uh, Herman Husband's not a proponent of racial equality. Um, he's also not, for lack of a better term, a socialist. Mm-hmm. And that he's never going to ad- he's not advocating for the abolition of private property. Uh, he actually embraces the concept of, of private property. Um, he actually believes that government is created to secure one's um, property rights. 
Um, and he ultimately believes it's those people that labor on the land who make that land through their labor valuable. It's those people that should have that ownership um, over that land. So don't think of him as, as a socialist, someone who's trying to end private property. Actually, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah. Him. So that's what he's not getting back to why he is radical and what he was. He does view, and I think this is the kind of the center of his, of his radicalism. He does view the American Revolution, this is, again, what he believes is the promise um, mm -hmm. of the American Revolution, is, is an opportunity to create a government that champions uh, the reduction of economic inequality amongst white society. Um, so his greatest fear, and I think this is a fear that a lot of other white men had at that time, was that in order for this republic, this new nation to ultimately survive, um, you need to avoid gross inequalities of wealth. Mm -hmm. And the idea here is if um, wealth becomes concentrated in the hands of a few, um, those individuals who have that wealth are going to use that wealth ultimately to uh, monopolize political office, political power. Once they have that political power, they're then going to rig the political system, the economic system to their favor. And the ultimate fear is that that few that have that wealth, they're ultimately going to exploit white. They're going to deprive those white men of the, what they call the fruits of their, um, mm -hmm. of their labor. Um, so the radicalism with Herman Husband is this notion that in order for this republic to survive, you need a relative degree of racial, excuse me, economic equality within mm -hmm. Um, white society, yeah. and that is radical for its time. Well, what's it, what's interesting about uh, about his radicalism then is it's almost in opposition to what his grandfather and father had been building. Both of these men aspired to be members of the gentry, and in part relied on slavery, and that they wanted to control, you know, have political office and political power, and to exacerbate inequalities between uh, the lowers and the uppers uh, members of society. Uh, but he, uh, Herman Husband, takes a, a different path. Yeah, one, one thing to, to note with, with Herman Husband, and well, I'll just call him economic populist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, is that they're not opposed to wealth per se. So not, they're just not going to be opposed to you because you're wealthy. After sure. all, Herman Husband is a very wealthy um, farmer. Yeah, oh yeah. But what they're opposed to is how you became wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you became wealthy off the backs of other individuals, depriving them of their fruits of the labor, um, that's when they would have a problem um, with that. So, so don't think that these individuals are completely opposed to the accumulation of wealth. Yeah, sure. Um, and again, Herman Husband, as I'm sure we'll talk about later on, I mean, he is a wealthy individual and he tries constantly oh, yeah. to get more land, to build his estate. But I think what's, I think one of the key things with Herman Husband, I guess this will actually tie us into religion. I hope I'm not jumping ahead of. Oh, no, this is, this is great because that's where I was going to go next. Is that he, he's a stubborn individual. <laughs> you, you say that um, in the book, yeah. As a teenager and throughout his whole entire life, he's stubborn. He's always defiant authority. He's always questioning authority. Why is that? Yeah. And, and for me, I, I, we, this goes back to the, the Great Awakening. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. When the Great Awakening occurs in the 1730s, 1740s, Herman Husband's a teenager. You know, he's 14, 15. He really becomes swept into this religious movement, but also a cultural mm -hmm. um, movement as well. In terms of religion, there's there's two kind of things I think he adheres to throughout his entire life. For, first of all, is he is going to be a, a post-millennialist. Yeah. 
Um, so he does believe that men, as a post-millennialist, you believe that humans have the agency, they have the ability to ultimately create a heaven on earth. And once they are able to do that, then that paves the way for the coming of, of, of Jesus Christ, the second, um, the second coming. So he's always throughout his life, and this begins with the Great Awakening, always trying to find keys of when that, when that millennial is going to begin, when, mm -hmm. when humans are going to be able to, to create that, that heaven on earth. And that does kind of influence the way that he ultimately views the American Revolution, that he's ultimately going to view the American Revolution as, as being divinely inspired. Yeah. Um, that in the end, this is our opportunity to create a government that's going to create that perfect that perfect society to create what he would call the new Jerusalem. When, when um, did he become interested in, in the personal, you know, the notions of personal salvation that come out of the great awakening? Cause he grows up Anglican, correct? Yes. Uh, yes. And then yeah, he, yeah, that's, this is my second point too, is yeah. this, the evangelical doctrine of what's known as the spirit within mm -hmm. this, this, this belief that God endowed, and we'll say men, human beings, but we're really talking about men at this time yeah. uh, with uh, moral reasoning. Yeah. So they have the ability to know right from wrong. Mm -hmm. They have the ability to follow their own conscience or their spirit within to not only get a connection with God, a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God, but also they can rely on their own um, conscience when dealing with religious matters. Because since they have the ability to know what's right or wrong, they don't really need a preacher, for instance, or church rules to tell them uh, what is right or what is wrong. Yeah. Um, so what that really is, is it, 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 it's what one historian calls it, it breeds kind of a defiant individualism. That's a good way of looking at it. That there, it makes you think, well, I have the ability myself to know what's right or wrong. I don't need a preacher, for instance, to tell me what's right or wrong. I don't need a preacher or these, these, these church elders to guide me in, in religious matters. I actually have the ability to do that myself. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see there, it kind of, it breeds this kind of, I'm going to rely, that really this individual conscience conscience it, it trumps church authority yeah yeah so you can see there it's kind of this anti-authoritarian rhetoric um it it, it 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 originally it's religious for him that the spirit within i have this ability to this uh, god has endowed me with this ability to know what's right or wrong um i don't need to listen to the dictates of the church to tell me mm -hmm. what is right or wrong um that is eventually going to get politicized though uh, where it begins to expand not only into religious matters, but also political matters um, oh, yeah. um, as well. But really that's getting back to what I was saying, why he was so stubborn yeah. is, is that adherence to that spirit within like, I, in my heart, guys endowed me with, a bit, with the, the reason to know what's right or wrong. You can't tell me what's right or wrong. Um, and I'm going to continue to follow my conscience, even if it brings me at odds with you, whether it's religious with the mm -hmm. religious establishment or with, um, the political establishment. Well, and he becomes he becomes uh, at odds with a number of people over the course of his life, but particularly in religion, you know. <laughs> he, uh, he, Never, I don't know if I really want to hang out with her. I don't know. He's, he's very interesting character. Anyway. Yeah, but maybe that's that's probably true for a lot of the subjects we studied. Right? It's like they're fascinating, but I sure as hell would not want to hang out with this person. It's probably but, very argumentative. I think. So yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was fascinating to read. Like, you know, he, he, he begins to descend from Anglicanism into uh, what was called New Side Presbyterianism or the, the yeah. e evangelical wing of Presbyterianism. And then he, that's not enough. And he finds his people for a time in, in Quaker, mm -hmm. Quaker theology. But at a point, he gets essentially disowned from his, his meeting over a series of controversies. 
And uh, even though he it would be fair to say that he maintains more or less the the tenets of Quakerism throughout the course of his life, but he's not. Um, I, I think he does with um, his aversion to violence, and this mm -hmm. might also plays a role in, in in many ways. He is a moderate when it comes to actually finding ways to implement change. Mm -hmm. um, but I think he, I think he abandoned, what, what only happens in, in 1764, kind of get what you were saying is, he yeah. believes that the Quaker church is kind of the ideal, the, what he calls the best religious society. That's also going to pave the way for the millennium. And what attracted him to the Quakers was really the, the, the notion of the inner light, where, you know, at, at a Quaker meeting, you didn't really have a preacher. I mean, yeah. as soon as someone felt, you know, that, that spirit within, they would stand up and they would, you know, speak. Um, so he really liked that. that there wasn't a lot of, you know, rules mm -hmm. in the Quaker church. Uh, there was a degree of, of equality amongst um, of the members as well. Um, but he ultimately, as we get into the 1760s, he gets into a conflict with um, several of these uh, brethren. He ultimately thinks that the Quakers have begun to sell out. They've begun to right. impose the elders begin to impose their rules onto the congregation. So for him, the Quakers are starting to sell out now. Um, <laughs> so that causes him, I think, to, he rejects organized religion, I think, mm -hmm. but he remains religious. Yeah. Um, and he continues to remain guided by that principle of the spirit within. Um, and he continues to rely on the Bible to allow him to help him understand the world in which he lived as well. <laughs> Now, so that's where his religious, like, don't, uh, again, he's going to remain religious, but he rejects yeah. some organized religion. And he actually, in the end, accepts another religion, but I might be about to get into what, what you're Well, I was going to say, I mean, in the title of your book is Redemption from Tyranny. So there is a, you know, there's the two, the, the two key words that he's, um, he's always struggling with or struggling against, you know, one, finding redemption and salvation in some form, but then also uh, making war against any kind of tyranny that uh, that tries to impose itself on him or his ideal of a of equal white society and and as he's struggling with uh, his religiosity and uh, and moving from new side Presbyterianism down into Quakerism and then ultimately uh, a very religious person with no particular affiliation what what is he doing to try to as you said earlier try to make his own way and to and to create wealth that isn't on the back of other people's but is is uh, in a kind of almost a ragged dick kind of sense of, you know, pulling himself up by his bootstraps and trying to create possibilities that lead to prosperity. Yeah. He's a, he's a very interesting character in that. And this is something I struggled with. He's a very, he, he is a, in the end, he's a very, he becomes a wealthy, he's a wealthy farmer. Yeah. Um, he's a self-made man. I really don't think his father helped him out particularly after he moves to um, North Carolina. Um, he is going to engage in land speculators. Mm -hmm. speculation so that's kind of ironic he is going to be opposed to land speculators who he's ultimately opposed to are absentee um, land speculators sure. um, so he's not really an absentee he's kind of there where um, um, his land is uh, but there's this conflict where he is this wealthy farmer um, but at the same time he identifies as being what he calls a common in the end, when he embraces the North Carolina regulation, when he embraces, you know, the American Revolution, the Whiskey Rebellion, what he's ultimately embracing is the cause of the common farm. There's just a little tension, I guess, between yeah. is, is he, for instance, sincere when mm -hmm. he says that he is the common farmer? And more importantly, is he sincere when he says that he's an advocate for these yeoman farmers, these yeah. tent farmers, um, these small farmers? 
um, of small farmers. And that's really something I, as I was writing the book, I was aware of that kind of dilemma. And this is kind of related to your question here. Yeah. So when he does achieve, he does kind of use, he, for him, economic prosperity, he believed in, you know, owning land yes. is the main thing. Um, and that's ultimately how he's going to try to, to make a living. That's how he ultimately makes a living is accumulation of land. Um, North Carolina backcountry, for instance, he's going to end up owning around 10,000 acres of land. Uh, this is, that's actually going to make him one of the most uh, largest landholders in kind of the Piedmont region. When he goes to North Carolina, or excuse me, uh, Western um, Pennsylvania, he's going to end up accumulating about 4,000 um, acres of land. But again, when he's defending these, calling himself a common farmer, when he's embracing the cause of, of, of the common farmer, really questions is sincere. Yeah. I mean, is he, when he's writing these pamphlets, is he just writing, using these farmers as kind of a pawn in order to, you know, advance his mm. political career and advance his um, economic um, um, prospects? And one of the pitfalls, I think, of biography is sometimes you kind of fall in love with your subject and like romanticize them a little <laughs> bit. So I was very cautious, you know, yeah. about not doing that. Oh, I understand that. Yeah. So, so here's why I kind of, my theory on all this is, is A, was he sincere? Well, I wish I had diaries. I think really the, the only way that you're going to be able to, to truly answer that question is to get inside his head. Mm -hmm. um, have no diaries. So all the works that I have of him were pamphlets. So, you know, he's writing these things with, this is going to be the public's going yeah. um, to read that. Um, so what else we have to do to answer that, you know, that, that kind of that tension is look at his actions. Yeah. And he was willing to put his money where his mouth was mm -hmm. and that he was willing to risk his liberty, risk his life in the cause that he believed in. So for instance, during the North Carolina regulation, he's, he's arrested three times, thrown in jail three times. I mean, he actually is fleeing North Carolina because of the price on his head. That's a great example, actually. And I wonder if we can get into the regulation a little bit. And, and maybe first, if you could just briefly remind folks what the war of the regulation was in North Carolina in this period, and then, and then get into Herman Husband's you know, putting his money where his mouth is. To make a very long story short, uh, what happens in the 1760s is a growing number of farmers in the Piedmont of North Carolina. The Piedmont of North Carolina at that time was the backcountry. Mm -hmm. And they are yeoman farmers, they're tenant farmers, they're also wealthier farmers like Herman Husband who participate, who are members of the North Carolina regulation. And what they're ultimately opposed to, uh, one of the myths is that they're opposed to, that this is really a, an attempt, the first attempt at gaining um, American independence of Great right. Britain, from Great Britain. That's a fallacy. Uh, what they're opposed to is not colonial rule, it's not um, King George III. What they're opposed to is local corruption. Mm -hmm. Uh, what they're opposed to or what they view as being um, political and economic inequalities that existed within um, the North Carolina backcountry. Um, so for a lot of these uh, people that eventually migrate from really the northern colonies to the Piedmont of North Carolina in the 1760s, most of them are, are going there to kind of live what back then would be the American dream, mm -hmm. you know, to own land. Um, again, that's the key to economic independence, own land, own enough land. Uh, you can support your family, and also, you know, they were also involved in the market economy. They would always kind of dabble, maybe grow some cash crops to make some money. Um, the problem is that there's this, there's this 
idea that the North Carolina backcountry was this place, this this heaven where you could go find that land. Mm-hmm. What they ultimately discover when they get there, though, is that it's difficult to actually gain ownership of that land, access yeah. Yeah. Um, to that land. So that's going to be one of the groups. And a lot of the reason for that is these large absentee landowners who are in a league with um, local officials mm-hmm. that are kind of, you know, preventing the common farmer from actually gaining title to that land. So it's an op- it's, it's, it's emergence of that, but also a lot of these farmers are becoming heavily in debt in, in the, in the Piedmont um, in that they need, they're not self-sufficient. They need money to, you know, buy goods they can't produce at home. Um, in some cases that they need money to buy slaves. Yeah. Um, they also need money to pay taxes. And that's another one of their, their, their grievances is that taxes um, are, not only increase, but these taxes are also uh, regressive in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, like a poll tax, for instance, that they believe discriminates against kind of the, the common man. So what happens in the mid-1760s um, is not only do a lot of these farmers have a hard time getting access to land, those that do have land are increasingly going in debt. And they also going to have to take out loans. Um, and typically it was merchants from those, from the urban areas, like mm-hmm. Hillcar, for instance, that had the capital. You didn't have banks back. They had the capital to issue kind of um, these loans. Uh, the problem though is, is your crops, you know, fell yeah. that season. Guess what? Can't pay back that loan. So increasingly, what you're seeing is a lot of these farmers are going into debt, and they're being sued by their creditors um, in court. Um, it turns out that the creditors were also in control of the courts. <laughs> so oftentimes, if you were sued, you're a debtor. You're sued. You're going to lose your case. Yeah. Um, when that happens, you lose your farm. So a growing number of these farmers believe that the political system is ultimately rigged against them, that there's mm-hmm. these corrupt court rings, uh, what they would call moneyed men, um, right. who are in the end trying to exploit the common farmer, uh, take away their land, take away um, their fruits of labor. So that's really the, what, what I would argue is the central kind of causes for this North Carolina regulation. So where does, where does Herman Husband factor into this? Uh, two things there. One is, again, going back to that notion that gross disparities of wealth mm-hmm. um, are ultimately the, 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 the leading threat to a republic. Yeah. And again, that notion that if, if, if a small group of people, if wealth is channeled to that few, they're then going to use that wealth to gain access to the political power. And then in turn, they're going to begin to exploit not only, you know, common farmers, but agricultural uh, as well. One thing that I think does alarm Herman Husband is that really what you see in not only the North Carolina backcountry, but throughout the entire American colonies in the 1760s, what I call a new elite, new kind yeah. of elite. Mm-hmm. That is not, their, their, their power is not grounded in traditional, you know, as being farmers, as being planters, but it's, being a lawyer it's, it's being a court official it's, it's being someone who is highly educated who is connected in, in the case of north carolina to the eastern elite yeah um so the way to achieve power changes fundamentally um where it's no longer based on you know the land that you own but you know you're a lawyer you you work you're a court official you have these connections to these these wealthy individuals um so a lot of it is, is, is he's fearing his own position. So there is self-interest. I don't yeah. want to, again, I'm trying not to romanticize oh, right. uh, yeah. my husband here. There is self-interest, but I do believe that he does sincerely believe that um, for society to work, and particularly as we get into the, the context of the American Revolution, for this new republic to work, mm-hmm. 
um, government ultimately has to work on behalf of, of the common good by trying to prevent gross amounts of economic inequality amongst yeah. um, so, um, white men. I, I think this is going to, so that's kind of what I'm getting to. The final thing though is this conflict of him being rich, but yet identifying as being a common farmer. And I think that ultimately to understand that possible tension is, is to kind of step outside the way that we view, for lack of a better word, class. I don't really like to use that, that term class, you know, socioeconomic class, because you know, there's a big debate over whether or not class existed during this period of time. Uh, but I think for Herman Husband and for other common people, um, white society was divided into two factions. On the one side, you have what was known as the laboring many. Um, Herman Husband would call them the, the laboring industrious people. And these are the, the laboring many, as many kind of uh, signifies, is this the vast majority of the people. And they are farmers. Um, they are artisans. They're individuals that through their labor, say for instance, for a farmer, through their labor by improving that land, they are creating wealth. Um, and that by improving that land through the sweat of their brow, that enables them to have access to that property. It gives them um, actual ownership. So for the this labor and many, as long as you're a farmer, as long as you're kind of doing those things, it doesn't matter if you're a rich farmer or you know a tenant farmer or a yeoman farmer, you're considered to be part of that laboring many. So opposed to the laboring many is the unworking few. Yeah. <laughs> um, Herman Husband would call them the idle rich. People who have gained wealth as being parasites. Yeah. Through exploiting the labor of others, through preventing these common farmers from enjoying the fruits um, of their labor. So it'd be people like bond speculators. It would be um, lawyers. It would be absentee um, land um, speculators. So for Herman Husband, how he can identify as being a common farmer is that, yeah, well, I might be wealthy, but I'm also part of the industrialist community. Sure. The industrialist community. Yeah. So again, that kind of, in many ways for him, there's really no tension. Yeah. That, yeah, hey, I can be wealthy and consider myself a common farm, but hey, I'm part of the labor community. Well, so, I mean, that makes, that makes complete sense. And, and then, so getting into the revolutionary period then, does he see that as an opportunity to shrink the gap between uh, the inequalities and to eliminate corruption uh, and, to, and to create what he's really looking for, but by this point, right, is this, this idea of a new Jerusalem, you know, a, a place to perfect um, God's paradise on earth and then usher in the second coming of Christ and the end of that millennial experiment. What he ultimately wants, maybe it's kind of like John Thomas Jefferson with the, you know, the young mm -hmm. farmer that yeah. he envisions, in the end, he thinks the ideal republic is going to be one in which those people that could participate in the politics and the political system, in this case, it would be white. They have to be economically independent. Yeah, And if you have gross inequalities of wealth, eventually what's going to happen is the few is going to seize basically economic power, political power, and those people that could be economically dependent are ultimately going to become dependent upon the wealthy few. So the idea is, for him, the ideal system would be an individual, would be really a, a yeoman farmer. An individual that owns their own land, that um, is self-sufficient, that's economically independent. Mm-hmm. And by economically independent, when it comes to them voting, for instance, they're not beholden to the interest of the wealthy, of a wealthy individual. They can follow their own conscience and yeah. get back to kind of uh, the religious aspects here. They can rely on their own conscience to elect people who Herman believe would be like themselves. 
good, yeah. virtuous farmers who have the interest of the farmer um, at stake. So for him, that New Jerusalem is, is a place where every white man owns land. Um, he participates in the political um, system. Uh, because they're economically independent, they inevitably, according to him, are going to elect individuals who have the best interest out for mm -hmm. the common good. And also a land in which the labor and many could enjoy the fruits of their labor. So if he were to have a conversation with Thomas Jefferson, and you know, Tom Jefferson was always preaching the, the idealized yeoman farmer, would, would Herman Husband be able to go up to Jefferson and say, look, I'm the, I'm the realization of your vision. Here I am. I am the kind of person that this republic needs, and I'm I'm living that dream right now, or at least trying to live that dream. Good question. One thing about, and I think of Jefferson. I think of the elite. Uh huh. Um, it, it turns out that Herman Husband, I think, is very popular amongst the common people, mm -hmm. and a lot of his ideas uh, for the elite are kind of out there, uh, where he talks about you know, really uses the Bible as kind of a blueprint for creating a government, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they, they view him as the elite, the educated elite, kind of view him as a quack. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and there's a really good letter, uh, is it Richard Peters? I believe that's his name. He was an attorney in Pennsylvania. He's writing James uh, Madison and talking about mm -hmm. Herman Husband's is in 1789. He's talking about <laughs> Herman Husband's plan for, you know, redoing the constitution, creating yeah. this new kind of federal government. And he calls it balderdash. Um, but he, then this is the funny thing, getting related to Thomas Jefferson. And yeah. he says, maybe you should tell Thomas Jefferson about the Herman Husband quack. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson might get a kick out of, of hearing some of, of, of his ideas. Well, what were um, some of his ideas for, the con for this new constitution? Because they, they are quite interesting. And I think that's putting it mildly. I'll do my best to be, blunt, I can, to be quick here. Well, it's a highly detailed plan too. So there's, there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah put things in context here. So Herman Husband is going to um, embrace the American Revolution. He is going to be a patriot. Mm -hmm. And throughout the 1770s and 1780s, um, he is going to view um, the American Republic as, as paving the way for, you know, the millennial, as, as, yeah. millennium, as you know, the, the future of, of, of mankind, the agent of reform, mm -hmm. as, he would, as he would call it. But as we get into the 1780s, he begins to lose faith in that vision and when i say in that vision he begins to lose faith in the new republic yeah in ultimately creating that um and that that's um of new jerusalem and one of the reasons for that is the u.s constitution mm -hmm. one thing that's probably the biggest thing he's opposed to in the constitute the u.s constitution is the the was well, ultimately the creation of large electoral districts um, yeah. congressional large congressional um districts and his fear here was, say, if you have this large congressional district, you know, it's, it's, it's a representative represents, you know, 30,000 people. It's this mm -hmm. large, you know, this, this, elect, this congressional district encompasses several counties, three or four counties. What he fears is that in, with such large congressional districts, the common people, the, 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 the people that most people are probably going to know are just going to be the elite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The very wealthy, and for husband, he thinks that again, not all wealthy people are mad or you know evil for him or mm -hmm. trying to exploit people, but oftentimes, <laughs> um, the people that are most well known through in a large kind of, of area tend to not really have the interest of the common person yeah. um, at heart. 
So what else we fear is with the, with the creation of these, these large congressional districts is that it's going to prevent the common man, the ordinary Joe, yeah. from actually being able to be elected to office. Because in the end, you know, if, it, if the larger the district, the less likelihood, even if you are a good, you know, for him would be a, a virtuous man, mm -hmm. um, an honest man who is really working on behalf of the labor of many. It doesn't matter because no one knows who you are. Right, right, right. So his fear is that in the end, due to these large um, congressional districts, it's going to be the the wealthy few who are ultimately going to go to Congress, mm -hmm. who are going to control the political system. And then the fear is once you control the political system, then it's just a matter of time before they begin to change laws, begin to uh, what her husband would say would be to enslave yeah. the laboring, um, the laboring many. So that's really what his main object, one of his main objections to the U.S. Constitution. Um, and that, I think that's the only one I'll touch on. Um, but what is the solution? I think this is what you want me to right. um, to get into here. Here's where religion plays another uh, a big role in shaping his worldview and yeah. him trying to understand how to form a government. He ultimately believes that the secret, the 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 Bible has actually already told us how to create a just and moral government, and it says so in the book of Ezekiel. Hmm. when God instructs the prophet Ezekiel to construct um, the temple of, of New Jerusalem. So the temple, if you, if the Bible describes the temple of Jerusalem as being and um, has having an enlarged base, so uh -huh. the, it has a strong foundation and it tapers off as it uh, begins to grow. So you have the strong foundation of a triangle. Mm -hmm. And he says that is how ultimately a government should be organized. That you have to have a strong foundation and then it kind of tapers off as it continues to grow. So what does he mean about that strong foundation? This is what he thinks that the U.S. Constitution lacks. For him, the key to making this republic successful, the key really to allow the common ordinary man to not only vote, but also to actually be able to have a shot at running for office, mm -hmm is through the creation of what he calls a uh, um, um, township assemblies. So what he proposes is that each state should be divided into townships. These townships would be um, 10, 10 miles, mm -hmm. I guess radius, whatever, basically 10 mile townships. And again, go back to his idea of why he hates these large congressional districts. If, if these townships, these township assemblies, these townships are 10 miles, yeah. that also means that everybody knows everybody. Oh yeah. So now it gives that hardworking, virtuous, um, common farmer who wants to run for office, who has the best interest at heart of the common people, it actually gives him a shot at being elected. Yeah. So for him, that's the key here. So these, you have these, these uh, township councils, and the idea here is inevitably the people are going to elect a, a good common farmer to serve in these assemblies. And these assemblies are a way to kind of, hey, he says they act as schools to kind of prepare these individuals that, that, that hey, you can, you know, govern. It, te it teaches them how to mm -hmm. really give themselves a higher self-confidence. They can actually, they're no longer deferential, I guess, to, right. you know, the, the, the elite. Um, but it also allows these individuals to really prove themselves at that township level as being good, virtuous people. If that's the case, um, then they can be then appointed to, now going back to the, you know, the temple here, how things begin to yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Taper off here. Above that township assembly would be um, district assemblies or, or a county assembly. So those individuals who have proven themselves at the township assembly level, they can then be appointed to kind of that higher level of, of government. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, once they prove themselves at that position, then they can go up to the state assembly. It would be a unicameral assembly. The point here is that he believes that the key, again, getting back to that wide kind of strong foundation, is that by creating those townships, inevitably the people that are ultimately going to come into power are going to be the common man. Yeah. Um, and for him, that's going to eliminate. By the time they are in state assembly, it's it's not rich people. It's not these. Uh, it's not the unworking few. Mm -hmm. It is the the labor and many who are I'm calling the shots. The scheme sounds very exciting and promise, right? Because then you have the opportunity for people to practice self-government at the very very localist of levels, and as you say, that acts as a school which they can you know, mature in in figuring out how to run a local society, you know, a local civic organization uh, and local government and then ascend up into these upper echelons where they can acquire more responsibilities over you know, greater numbers of people and ultimately wield power having gone through this training. And at, at the same time that there's, a, there's greater accountability, it seems, in these schemes mm -hmm. where people are much yes. more beholden yes. to their constituents than they yes. ever would be in a Madisonian scheme of representation. Yes, yes, I'm glad you mentioned that right there. Yes. So it's, it's really fascinating, you know, and people should definitely read that read the whole book, right? But they read that section of the book where he, in his mind, figured this thing out and here's how we should proceed. And, and here is how we can actually create this kind of equitable society that in which empowers the common folk as opposed to the muddied interest or the professional class or all these other individuals who stand to essentially a, a corruption or even what we might now call crony capitalism yeah. uh, against the regular person or the regular farmer who's just trying to get by by the sweat of their own brow doesn't work out that way though for him uh, no, that's where you see this frustration and again i don't i don't think that herman husband's alone in these beliefs i mean i think his pamphlets oh sure um his religious his political pamphlets reflect the ideas of people around him common people around him the whiskey rebellion is a great example of that mm -hmm. you know certainly and that's his last hurrah that's he's in the final fight of his life in that one before I wrote this book, before I really began to read really in depth about the whiskey rebellion, I always thought, you know, it was because of the whiskey tax. That was kind of, yeah. but it turns out it's a, the, these whiskey rebels or regulators, whatever term you want to use. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it goes much more deeper why they ultimately are opposed to the new federal government. It goes much deeper than just the whiskey tax. Sure. Oh, sure. What they view is, in many ways, like Herman Husband, they viewed this republic as an opportunity for them to create that new Jerusalem, mm -hmm. to create a, a government in which that works on behalf of the common good. But what their frustration is, is state and ultimately national policies um, in, the, in the 1780s that they ultimately believed work on behalf of the, the wealthy few yeah. that are ultimately working like the Funding Act. Um, um, for instance, or um, in, in Pennsylvania, for instance, uh, conservatives, that's what they were um, mm -hmm. called in the 1780s. They're really fiscally, um, well, socially conservative, I guess. <laughs> uh, but, but in many ways, they're going to undo a lot of that 1776 uh, Pennsylvania state constitution, which at mm -hmm. that time was one of the most democratic constitutions um, in the world. They, they begin to, to roll back, kind of tame, to kind of use the, the words of one historian, kind of tame that 
that democracy. Yeah. Um, so the whiskey rebellion for me is not only a reaction to the whiskey tax, but a reaction to a lot of these policies that's enacted at the state level and the national mm-hmm. level. And that Herman Husband, these other individuals believe that, wait, the people that are now in power, like George Washington, for instance, yeah. they're acting very eerily similar <laughs> to those British in the 1760s, yeah. in the 1770s. They've um, seen so it before. The Whiskey Rebellion is, is kind of a reaction to that. Like, wait, our promise of what the American Revolution was going to create has become perverted. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That the, the wealthy elite, in fact, has prevailed um, against us. That New Jerusalem is under threat. The barbarians are at the gates in some ways. And while Washington and Hamilton and those guys would have seen the whiskey rebels, the regulators as, I mean, maybe barbarians is too strong a word. The, the opposite might not be true for, for Herman Husband and, and his crew because they, you know, they see powerful people as inimical to the common folks' interest. And, mm-hmm. and the revolution's promises are unfulfilled and actually slipping away because of, of what this new republic is becoming. As we're, as we're nearing the end of our time together, Bruce, I do want to ask you a, a couple more questions. First, really, what attracted you to this topic? You're clearly very excited about it, and, the, and that comes across not only in, in our conversation now, but in the book. But you've also said that you've been very careful not to romanticize husband, but to give him a fair treatment. So, And how did you come to this topic in the first place? lived most of my childhood, uh, adolescence, in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I've always been kind of a history buff. So I was at an early age, I knew what the North Carolina regulation was. Um, and, you know, every time you think about the North Carolina regulation, whenever it's mentioned, there's always this, this weird Quaker guy by the name of Herman Husband. <laughs> one of the leaders of, although he's a pacifist. Um, anyway, I, I kind of knew Herman Husband, you know, just growing up in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, I thought he was a fascinating character. I really didn't think much after that. Um, I became interested in him again, though, when I was writing my dissertation, what would become my first book. Um, uh, that first book was dealing with alcohol distilling slash moonshining in Western North Carolina during the 19th century. Mm-hmm. But that subject ultimately forced me to begin to read a little bit about the Whiskey Rebellion. Yeah. And it was Thomas Slaughter's. Um, I think it was Thomas Slaughter's book I remember I was reading. And oh, yeah, sure, like, sure. Like, whoa, here's Herman Husband. Is this the same guy <laughs> 30 years previously that was in the North Carolina regulation? And yeah. that really got me. So this guy goes from uh, North Carolina regulation, in my opinion, was the largest agrarian uprising in colonial American history. He's one of the leaders of it. And then 30 years later, he's up in here in, in southwestern Pennsylvania participating in, in the Whiskey Rebellion. That yeah. really, like, wow, that's, this guy is pretty been everywhere, but yeah. just lived an amazing, um, amazing life. So now what happens is I finish my first book and I'm trying to find a new topic something for my for my second book and, mm-hmm. you know you've, you've been through this you think of an idea and you're like oh yes surely no one's written about this idea <laughs> yeah no oh, one's ever touched shoot, this book there's like 10 books written on exactly what i thought <laughs> but you know it took me about six months really thinking about what i wanted to do for some reason i thought about i remembered herman husband again mm-hmm. and i looked it up and i was like i'm curious what other people have written about him and it, Turns out that there was a biography of him written in 1940, um, published in 1940. And there's also a dissertation that was written in 1982 that has not been published. Okay. And that's really it. There's no other book length studies wow. of, of Herman Husband. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, it, 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 the, more I, the more I researched about him, I was like, wow, he was impacted by the Great Awakening. He was involved in North Carolina regulation. He was involved in 
um, the American Revolution. He was involved in the in the whiskey rebellion. For me, it's like this is a perfect individual to kind of chart kind of this this long night this long um, 18th century mm-hmm. show kind of the 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 religious the the political the economic forces through time that ultimately shape his his worldview. So really, I just kind of like, well, I can't believe that no one's really there needs to be an, an, yeah. you know, an updated biography. Oh, that's a that's um, a great individual. Such a happy and, moment. I mean, I was hesitant at first. I'll go ahead and I I was not trained. I'm, I'm trained as a 19th century historian. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I had you know going through graduate school. You know, you read Gordon Wood, you know, Balin, those individuals. But I was really wasn't grounded in the historiography of right. like, the American Revolution, the um, the Great Awakening. So I was like, hesitant at first because I was like, man, I'm gonna have to teach myself. <laughs> <laughs> It's like uh, all, all this, all this, this historiography. Um, so it was daunting, but at the same time, I mean, that's why we're historians. I mean, I love, I mean, we get paid to basically consume information, to consume <laughs> um, knowledge. My other concern too is it's, uh, it bi- it's a biography. Uh, yeah. I mean, try to be, biography is hard to sell to, to academics, to, to many um, mm-hmm. academic presses. So that was always on my mind too, is, I mean, I, I think this is a great book, great idea, but in the end, you also got to think of, is someone actually going to be willing to publish um, this as well? That was going to be my follow-up question too. Who was the audience you had in mind? Because it's one thing to sell it to the press, but then you've got to sell it to a, a reading audience. Who were who you thinking about when you were writing it and how did that shape the writing process itself? Yeah, broadly speaking, and I'll, I'll narrow this down, but a general audience in that. Mm-hmm. I think one of the luxuries of having your, you, you publish your own, your first book, you have tenure, is for me at least it was liberating that I could go back to what ultimately made me interested in history and that was stories. Yeah. And less about, you know, engaging in depth in the historiography, but really telling a story, mm-hmm. writing a narrative um, to entertain people, not only entertain, but ultimately to educate sure. on these people. So, so my idea was, um, I'm, I'm sure you noticed this, is it's really a narrative and it's really not until the conclusion that I really begin to touch up on the historiography, but even in that, I believe that essay in the conclusion is more of a narrative form. Yeah, um, yeah, it um, sure is. Well, so broadly speaking, it was just I was targeting just an individual just wanted a good story that wasn't necessarily inclined of you know is this guy reinventing the wheel, mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you know, groundbreaking, you know, or changing our understanding of the whole republicanism versus liberalism <laughs> debate and stuff like that. You know, oh boy, people want a good story. Yeah. To, to be even more specific, and this is probably me being a, a professor now, is, is as I was writing this, I was writing it for a college student. And I tried to put myself yeah. in the shoes of a, a, of a college student who could be a history major, could not mm-hmm. be a history major, maybe taking first half U.S. history or, you know, the American Revolution. And I was trying to find, and here's, where, again, where I think Herman Husband's perfect as, mm-hmm. as a kind of a teaching tool for professors is that he, it, a student can read that biography and can understand, okay, this is how the Great Awakening, for instance, is, is attached to the American Revolution or yeah. attached to radical Whig um, ideology. And, and teaching that, um, I, actually, one of the first things I did when I knew I was going to write this book is I did, I taught an American Revolution class just to kind of figure out, you know, how I'd go about teaching it. Um, but uh, it, it is hard, I think, to allow these students to make larger connections. Mm-hmm where you talk about the Great Awakening and then a month later you're talking about, you know, the Stamp Act crisis and they're kind of like, well, how does that relate to the Great Awakening? I think with, with Herman Husband, it's a good way through narrative to kind of make those connections to students. 
So that's what I was thinking when I was writing this book too, is I guess I'll write it for a college professor as well. Like, yeah. This would be a good book, you know, if you're talking about the Great Awakening, you sign the first chapter, which kind of outlines what the Great Awakening is, and it uses Herman Husband as a way to, as a lens through which to view how that movement impacted, shaped an individual's um, worldview. So that was also my audience. Um, um, when I was, I was reading it, that's what I had in mind. I thought, oh, this would be a great book to assign in class because it does exactly what you say. I mean, it, it uses his life to make those connections between these seminal moments in early American history. I mean, I, I, I still can't get over when I've, I think I read the introduction. It's like, wait, this guy was involved in the Great Awakening, the regulation of North Carolina, the American Revolution, and the Whiskey Rebellion. How does that happen? And I'm, I kept thinking, does anybody else actually come close to that? And I'm, and I'm racking my brains that I'll know. But it, it, it would be, and I'm sure it is, and it just came out. So, you know, faculty have time to, to order it in the general public as well. But it would be a really great book to just sit down with a class and say, all right, let's talk about this long 18th century and how it influenced and impacted the lives of people like Herman Husband. Uh, I think that comes through very clearly. To me, it's the strength of a biography is um, if it's written correctly. And I yeah. think one of the criticisms of biography is that sometimes the, the writer will be too focused in on the subject. Mm -hmm. It makes them lose the side of the picture. Yeah. And that's something that what I've tried to do my best is, well, this is about Herman Husband, but also it's about the world in which he lived. Yeah. Well, um, and for me, that's one of the strengths of biography is if you're able to talk about the bigger picture, but it's also, you're reading about an individual, it's more relatable. Sure. Uh, for a student, for instance, that we can just chart this instead of, it's, instead of just talking about many people, you're talking about this one guy. Yeah. And following him through, um, um, through time, just a little bit more engaging. Well, I, I completely agree. I, th you know, I think you've told a great story. Uh, I enjoyed reading it. I think others will too. And I think certainly our colleagues would enjoy teaching it in an early American or early Republic or Rev War class. So uh, congratulations on the publication. I know it just came out. Bruce, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for inviting me to uh, talk to you. It's our pleasure and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Busky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.